The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode three of The Ascent of Board Games, where we talk about board games and how they became what they are and try to make that less boring than I just made it sound. So I think we wanted to start by talking a little bit about what we've been playing lately, because it's been a little while since we got together to record. I'll go first because I'm currently talking and also my list is short because work has been setting my hair on fire lately. I've played, in addition to a couple of electronic-y games for this episode, which we'll talk about a little more later, uh, I have gotten a little bit of gaming in. I got to play Azul a few times, which I quite like. It's abstract, but it's pretty well done and very pretty. And there's also, I don't know if you've seen, there's like a jumbo version of it where the, the tiles are like hilarious. two or three inches square. It's ridiculous. <laughs> that sounds the board like it is enormous. a little bit too much space. Yeah, Just and, a little and bit the too bag, much. I think, is like an actual burlap flower sack that you're drawing the tiles. I really want to somebody to just make like that game on like bathroom floor tiles <laughs> that's what the ginormous tiles functionally is also you're not so much as playing the game as you are just tiling, tiling a floor, floor. Right, exactly. <laughs> if i ever need my bathroom retiled i'm like guys let's play some azul i have this great setup <laughs> but yeah that and i got to play a uh, little mansions of madness and then i got to play uh make database configurations which is not nearly as fun as it's it sounds. Not a fun game. I do not recommend it. It's better with the expansion. <laughs> is it? Is it better with the expansion? Because so I've actually been uh, recently this weekend gaming with my niece and nephew. So I've gotten some really great games down. There is the fishing game, and there was the one where I'm putting balls on a caterpillar's hands. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, just for the I, record, I, I, I don't actually know the names of any of those games. I was going to say, how are we going to, to include is these it, in the show it, notes, let's Mike? Let's Go Fishing Board Game? Let's Go Fishing Board Game. Okay, Let's Go Fishing is the board game, and we got a caterpillar hands? I might be able to Google that. Uh, it was like Wiggle, wig, Wiggly, Wiggly. Uncle Wiggly? No. That's an old one. Like Wiggly something. <laughs> I can't wait for our like, review breakdown of this game. <laughs> Giggly Wiggly? Giggly Wiggly. <laughs> That's it. Giggly Wiggly? All right, Mike, I'm going to need you when I'm you go play games with your nieces and nephews to go look up the names of those games. <laughs> also so the year, the designer, and the, the manufacturer. Year designer, <laughs> the manufacturer. Oh, if we do like a kid's game episode, I got you covered. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, yes, you do. It's Giggle Wiggle is actually what it is. It's not Giggly Wiggly. It's Giggle Wiggle. Giggly if, Wiggly if, is a sequel. Yes. <laughs> Okay, let's take that from the top. So no, why? No, I think no, that's, that's, there's no taking from the top. That's perfect just All the way it is, no taking, Mike. What does taking cool. from the well, top even mean? I mean, it literally doesn't matter because I'm not in charge of editing all this. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's the joy of uh, it. I'm enjoying it immensely right now, so, actually. Giggle Wiggle like and cool Let's Go Fishing, uh, which is not great board games. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. But... I would not deny my niece and nephew the pleasures of playing those games, much like I would not deny a child playing Candyland. Not a great game. Definitely formative in their establishment of colors. Better with the expansion. Uh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, for reals, though, I've we just finished playing this great game of Brief History of the World. I have really forgotten how much I have enjoyed playing A Brief History of the World. Like, that game is... it's 
the game that I wish Risk always had been growing up. Like, it's so good. So you're saying it's actually fun? Oh, oh yeah, it's no, a lot it's of fun. Great. It always there are always really good decisions to be made and until the last two rounds of the game we were all within several points of each other the entire time like the scoring mechanism is extremely tight right and um, nobody suspected the huns with mediterranean boats that swept down through the african north coast I like mean, going going last in a round then going a first in a round the next super round super strong super strong yeah jason have you have you played brief history i haven't we I should haven't. do that sometime. Oh, it's really good we'll, like we'll, it we should play this we'll play that we'll play the new version this weekend because i should have it by then since so z-man is releasing a a re, reprint re not necessarily reprint but like the, like a reissue there's some rebalancing based on the the data I've seen thus far the the preview images they have up so I'm really interested in giving getting breaking that out to give it a try so that would be fun well and and as usual you'll you'll probably hear me saying this again in the future Arkham Horror LCG like that game still has hits me in all the feels because it is so good I do like that nuts. game there's a difference no. <laughs> I've played yeah. that game four times now and all four times I've played a starter scenario because Mike <laughs> keeps wanting to introduce the game to people. So I have literally no idea why Mike likes the game. Cause I'm like, these starter scenarios are fine. But then like the, I feel like the real, the real joy of the game is like leveling up and seeing the story. And I've literally never done that ever in any of it. It's so you've but, seen the but, first episode of four different series. Yeah. It's like, this is <laughs> no, great. No. I guess. You've seen the first episode of the same series, four different yeah. times. <laughs> Um, anyway, th that Mike game... is just desperately trying to make me hate the game. I think. At this <laughs> I think point. so. Well, it's I generally so. not hard to make you hate a game. Joe. No, that's tr I have opinions. Listen, <laughs> I don't want to hear your nonsense. But don't worry, Joe. You love adventure games. I do love adventure games, all of them, every single one, except for Shadows of Brimstone or Imperial <laughs> Assault or Descent or. That's another Ooh. episode. <laughs> Literally any adventure game. All right. Uh, so I was also there with Mike to play Brief History of the World. Um, also, yesterday we played a game of Dominant Species most of a game of dominant species i was reminded why the things i like and don't like about that game the things i like about that game is that it feels really interesting and there's lots of cool decisions you're making and the things i don't like about the game is it's hyper fiddly it's like the most fiddly game ever right so fiddly that game and, and you've played so fast food franchise i do i like fast food what? franchise <laughs> heresy fiddly Fiddly. It is fiddly. I'm just saying. It's fiddly, but it's not as fiddly as Dominant Species. Dominant Species, you have a hex, and on the hex there are little element tokens, and then you need to. The, one of the problems I have with the game is that the rulebook says, "Hey, it is each player's job to say when dominance needs to be recalculated," because there's not a phase where you recalculate dominance, and it's just this like living thing. So like every time a move is placed, you're like, "I need to go figure out dominance in these three squares," because I kind of care about dominance in these three squares. I don't care about dominance in these other squares, but another player cares about dominance in those squares. It's like it desperately needs like a computer or something to be doing all these calculations. Which is actually a fascinating segue into our subject on today. We're not there yet <laughs> um agenda uh, but it's like i there are pieces i like a dominant species but it is hyper hyper fiddly like just like tons of tiny little things i could tell when i was describing the game there was someone who hadn't played it yet his eyes kind of glazed over as i kind of read through this this super dense rule book in, in all fairness his eyes glaze over regularly that's, anyway that's during fair. reading rule that's books fair. that's fair but so still. joe have you ever played antiquity i haven't you probably should, but the number of chits and the amount of stuff on the board will terrify you. I don't mind. I don't mind stuff that is fiddly. I just I want it to be fiddly for a reason that I feel is appropriate. Like I like Luniana, and Luniana is fiddly. I was gonna ask. Um, you talked about all the tiny bits. And I was gonna ask where they fit on the Luniana scale of tiny bits. Uh, they're actually a little bigger than Luniana. Oh well, okay. I'm actually gonna argue that you like Luniana. I think 
<laughs> you like the concept of Luliana, but you've only ever played it like once or twice. I've played it a couple of times. Oh, that was a terrible werewolf me. game. Yeah, I think it's the game is not uh, bad. It's just impossible to do because yeah, all the pieces are a quarter so inch. Much, yeah. I'm, I'm just gonna reprint. What, wait, I have a Glowforge now. I'm yeah. going to make an upsized version of Luliana. I'm in. Let's do it. Done. Totally. Like I like the game. It's just I can't wait. I to think play. I like the game. But anyway, um, I can't think of anything else I've been playing. Uh, uh, you've been playing Aeon's End some more. That's true. We've been playing a lot of Aeon's End. I do enjoy Aeon's That's End a, a good lot. Game. Actually, interestingly, after uh, Frank introduced us to Aeon's End at the uh, end of our first episode, Joe went out and bought all of it, yep. except for one piece, which we then started playing. Joe realized he didn't have that expansion and proceeded to buy that expansion. We all have a problem. There's yes. No it was awful. It was like, go find these cards. And it's like, I don't have them. I feel dirty. My, I don't understand what's happening right now. My life is incomplete. My life is incomplete. Was that a prime now, Dillery? <laughs> no, not quite that. Actually, that one is the, there's two of them that like aren't in print right now. So that one was actually a little pricey, which sucks. Hell. Um, but yeah. But yeah, no, I, I like, and then is, is really great. I'm, I'm really enjoying like seeing the different enemies they have different really different mechanics they feel really different all this a lot of the spells feel really different so that's pretty cool and if you'd like to know more about aeons End, please check out episode one the deck building episode I, i'll guess i'll go next um i was over at a friend's house um that they don't play the, the heaviest of games so it's kind of a combination of games i've already played and a couple new ones um we played a king of tokyo because we had like seven people I'm reminded at how bad that game scales with lots of people <laughs> because you basically enter Tokyo and get annihilated with a giant alpha strike from everybody on the board. And so you were playing King of Tokyo, not even King of New York. Yeah, they didn't have New York. They no. didn't have the powers upgrade either. So I was just like, what? Oh, it's, it's literally what? just dice rolling the game. So <laughs> yeah, um, I did. I did. Uh, did have a little fun with it. I played a card that took out three people in the same turn, and then I died immediately afterwards. <laughs> so, so worth it. It was. I was playing my own game. Oh, I see. <laughs> Moral victory. Little yeah, achievements exactly. coming exactly. up there. Ding. <clears throat> So that was King of Tokyo. Uh, we also played uh, Not Alone, because again, seven people, and that was a huge hit. Uh, these None of the people had played it or even heard of it before, and two of them at the table <coughs> bought the game while we were standing there. Yeah, so that's a game really that good. really needs to be better known for that yeah. style of game. Yeah, and, and it played very differently than our game. It was, it was kind of funny. With um, a, did it play better with that more people? Because I felt I got the feeling it would play more better with more people. I, yeah, I, I feel like it did. And the great thing is, since it's so simple, like people, once they played a few rounds of it, it was everyone understood it, and like turns were fast and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very it was very close. It was within one space of either team either nice. side winning. So that that was nice. That's awesome. Uh, and then I got to play a couple of other things I've never played before. Uh, a quick little card game called Guillotine. Yes, I like Guillotine. Yeah, where you uh, you're basically uh, arranging the order of nobles getting beheaded yep. and uh, scoring points based on what type it is. Um, it's I copy right behind Joe, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, uh, I like the uh, the back and forth of it. That was really fun. Um, especially like <laughs> flipping the token of the, mm -hmm. the guillotine from one side to the other. It's like, oh, you thought you were last. Now you're first now. <laughs> Mike, you didn't talk about Love Letter Cthulhu. Oh, uh, God. You mean Lovecraft Letter? Sure, oh! whatever it is. Oh, man. So I I'm just going to put this out to the universe, but the, the last thing that Love Letter needs is to be more complicated. Like that, I agree. The beautiful thing oh. about Love Letter is its simplicity. Adding more to it is unnecessary. Now, but how can you sell more? You can retheme it infinitely. Mm. Batman love letter, terrible, terrible. Archer I think... love letter, 
surprisingly decent. That, that's really actually isn't that basically a love letter? Yeah. Um, oh, there you go. Now, for those of you that don't know, Lo- Lovecraft Letter has an interesting concept. I-, I think they stumble on the execution, but the the premise here is that you have a set of cards that operates just like Love Letter, but in addition to those cards, you've got a second set that has alternate powers that you activate when your character is insane and you go insane by playing those alternate cards. Now, in my opinion, it should be like, hey, if your character is insane, you must just always activate the insane text. But because that might not always apply to the situation that the state of the game is in, it is actually optional where if you are insane, you can either activate the insane text or not insane text because you're insane, I guess. I don't know. Like I said, it, it's it got an interesting concept. I don't think it's fully baked game mechanics. It's got a beautiful box. That thing was pretty and it's got these nice like poker chip tokens to indicate wins and losses. I think if you're interested in Lovecraft and Love Letter, it might be up your alley, but uh ugh. <laughs> not, not, not but you. maybe not. That's that, that's glowing, what I got from that glowing five, five, five minute review. <laughs> yeah, I want that on the box. <laughs> I mean, how do you, you spell? If, uh, uh, if you like love letter and like Cthulhu, maybe this is for you. But uh. <laughs> Kodan. Kodan. How about a nice how very? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just one, one more that I actually got to play. I got to play um, Warhammer Shadespire. It's a basically a two player scenario scenario based. Um, like skirmish game, uh, beautiful, beautiful models uh, that are surprisingly easy to put together, right? They're not the traditional <laughs> games workshop. Oh, look at all the fiddly bits. I have to figure out where this gets glued on. Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> You've never put together a Malifaux miniature. No, I... Oh, I no, have, no. Yes. Kingdom Death. Eh, all right, fair. I'll give you that. No, no, no. Having Death, done I both, like I would scary. argue that some Malifaux models are infinitely worse. And I'm talking about the goblin with the stupid little beard. Having put together both, I would say there are some Malifaux models that are worth thinking to death models. I've put together okay. both. And then there's it's a it's a close line. It's okay. a close line, but there are a couple that okay. are a little worse, which is surprising. All right, because... now we're turning into a miniatures podcast. Well, so fair enough. Probably Good point. All right, you were saying. Yeah, th- what's interesting about the game? You only have three rounds. You have four activations per round. So a lot of the game is figuring out positioning and deciding what you're going to do with your very limited action set. Um, the benefit of that, of course, is that it's a very short game. So you can get in a number of games in a relatively small amount of time. And then the last thing, we, we almost played Mechs versus Minions. Um, everyone was all excited about it until they opened up the box and then kind of eyes fell out of people's heads and that was the end of that uh, that discussion. <laughs> so one day I'll play that. <laughs> uh, what was what was the problem? Is it assembly required or No, no, it's just like they opened it up, they're like, Oh dear God, there's a lot of there's a lot of models. There's a lot of things going on, and then the guy who owned it is like, yeah, I've never played this before. We're like, oh, no. Oh, and no. time. It's actually okay. not that complicated game. That's what he told it's us. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to give it a shot, but that that was not the right audience. I I've got one. We can talk. Of course you do. You have all the things. Yeah, true. Let's see. Uh, of late, I finally got GKR to the table, which is a cute light mech game. Uh, Weta Workshop produced it, and it's gorgeous. But otherwise, it's a cute kind of very lightweight mech warrior kind of game for those that didn't want to deal with all the heat rules because <laughs> mech warrior i'm sorry they have any just uh, arguments over what line of sight was in the game 
No, because line of sight rules are really clear. They're just weird. They are until you start <laughs> looking at like firing between buildings. Oh, and... yeah, that's fine. Now nah, it pretty much worked. Oh. Yeah, GKR is, is giant killer robots, by the way. For, for yes, GKR heavy that. hitters is the full Ooh. name. Ooh, fancy. Um, but because our we have uh, two groups that mostly do co-op games, and they're the exact same people, so we get to play all those campaign games. Uh, yesterday we finished Stuffed Fables, which is a cute game by plaid hat that's totally channeling mice and mystics um but with a better more consistent set of rules and some clever things going on what happens in that one you draw action dice based on the color of the dice they determine what actions you get so you know if you're wielding a melee weapon you don't draw any red dice kind of screwed and having to figure out what to do with your dice huh. um so in game your character just forgets how to use a sword totally or you well they're purple dice that are they're wild. wild it can be anything but oh. no you totally forget how to use a sword you just can't make an attack <laughs> i would love to try stuff fables like i i'm a huge fan of my mystics like stuff that, fables that game is, is so thematically good yeah it so stuff fables has the thematic elements of mice and mystics but the rules are simpler and more varied and the base system is really clear-cut, it's obvious, and requires a little more thought. I mean, it's hard to figure out what to do. But yeah, totally worth playing, and yeah, a great game. And I bothered to paint the minis. The other one is City of Kings, which Joe promptly bought based on my <coughs> I raving. I haven't yet. I'm really close, though. <laughs> I'm we really close. that right now, Joe. I could yeah. fix that right now. It's a laptop right in front of you. Joe, you City have a Kings problem. City of Kings is a great Is it that I don't own game. City of Kings? Because you're probably right. Yeah, that, that is yeah. a problem. Yeah. You know, it, when you started saying that, for some reason, I, I, I was terrified for the moment that you were going to say City of Chaos. <laughs> I've already got a City of Chaos. It's I know. Out. I have I one. I hope it's... Ring that bell, Brian. Ring that bell. Did you see they're re-releasing it? Why? The the classic? <laughs> oh, I'm excited. I'm back actually, actually, I'm excited. No, I'm going to go look at it and laugh. It sounds like they, they may have fixed some of the things. that that game want, doesn't make any sense. I don't want to get too deeply into it now, but that is a prime candidate for the games I want to love but can't episode. It's also really good for the paragraph games when we get there. Yes. But yeah, City Kings has very little luck. Terrifying little luck. Except for the setup. Every monster... Whenever you draw a monster, you draw three or four powers with it to figure out what it does. And monsters are not your friends. Well, I mean, that's you know, why they call them a monsters, lot of games. Right? You kind of go through minions and, oh, it's a monster. Cute. I'll go mm-hmm. kill it. No, a monster comes on the board and you're freaking terrified because it's going to kill you. And you have to actually rally, suddenly change your entire strategy based on, oh, crap, there's a monster on the board. Oh. And that feel is kind of unusual i mean there's a there's a hint of kingdom death going there well so you said that the monsters are randomized at the beginning with special powers so like even if you're fighting a goblin in one game oh there's no such thing as a goblin it's a well but for example a goblin with a sword and board in one game might have like a spear in another game and then or acid breath or poison tail you gotta watch out for those goblins or giant fireballs Mm. or hounds that follow you Uh, really the monsters are all bosses they don't have small monsters but they're also pretty generic. So uh, basically we're calling this episode Batteries Included because it is about board games which have an electrical or electronic component to them, whether that be uh, a little computerized gizmo, an app, um, occasionally just some sort of loose wires lying around back in the early days before there were any kind of you know health and safety regulations. Um, basically board games with electric stuff on them. Um, which have a surprisingly long history, as we discovered going in here. 
the first one that we're aware of goes back to 1910, and this is a discovery of Frank, so we'll let him roll on it. So, yeah, the first game, really, uh, probably the first electric, elect, not electronic, uh, would be something called Electra, Electro, Electric Quiz, Electro Animal Quiz. So basically, this thing came out in 1910, designed by David Knapp. Over 100 years ago, folks. Oh, dear Lord, that is 100 years ago. And it consists of nothing but a bulb, a couple probes, some sheets of quiz paper, and a bunch of wires. What actually happened in the game is you have a list of questions on the left and a list of answers on the right. When you put the probe on your question and you put the probe on the correct answer, it lights up. And the way they did this was basically by wiring the questions to the answers on the back of the board. So pretty much the answer to question four is always answer nine. For some reason, this went through, I don't know how many editions up until the 50s. Well, I mean, especially in the early days, it's sort of like, how does it know? You know, it's it's the, the magic of electrical science. What is this wizard fox? Exactly. Yeah. These, this artwork for this game is amazing. I know. The original 1910. Oh, my gosh. Look at the Egyptian awesomeness of it. And Man. Yeah, I don't know how many, how they did that, mini editions or anything. It's just. It seems like it would get old in like three seconds. Well, I mean, that it, just like today's standards with expansions, you got to keep selling, man. Change up those quizzes. Mm-hmm. But after that, I think we're pretty much skipping to the 60s, right? Or the 50s? Yep. I think, uh, I think 65 is, is the next one we found. Certainly the first one that probably most Americans were familiar with, which is uh, Operation, uh, the classic from Milton Bradley. <laughs> the yes. wacky doctor's game. Exactly. Basically, it was designed by uh, a guy by the name of uh, John Spinello. Uh, he sold it to Milton Bradley, and um, basically, he, they gave him a small amount of money and a job. Uh, <laughs> they didn't actually deliver the job. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But frankly, Marvin Glass's name is on this, and if you played any kind of electronic or toy game from the 60s, a mousetrap, everything Marvin Glass associates is the name behind all those. Um, he, w- he was the tycoon. Yeah, totally. And it's yeah, an entire like stable of designers who did 60s toys. They defined our universe. It's interesting because they definitely, and this might just be Milton Bradley mass market games, but this game is still created and sold today. Like I, I played it just this weekend with my niece and nephew who are of an appropriate age for the game. And it is a dexterity game that holds up even now for kids. I mean, not so much adults, but the novelty is there. Yeah, I saw a stat that said its a property is estimated to be about worth $40 million. That's so crazy. <laughs> I know, it's right? It's so crazy. Like, it's such a simple concept, but, like, just, like, the longevity of it, right? Yeah, and apparently there's also a lot of different licensed versions, which is weird to me because I'm not sure. I mean, how many different types of things can you dissect? Um, I think I saw an alien autopsy See, one. That, I was that gonna makes say. sense. That totally makes sense to me. Can can we have that? <laughs> That's hilarious. Can actually. we have that with the alien movie property? Because like then you could extract like aliens out of the of the body. Like it'd be great. Maybe get the face hugger off. Mm-hmm. 
There you go. Pull some bullets out oh, of some legs. Yeah, they could just have Kane and you have the face hugger on his face, the chest burster <laughs> in his chest. Oh, that'd be wonderful. They need to work on that. Has somebody done a game like that? That almost sounds familiar. Like, you know, if you if you do the wrong thing, then the alien pops out. <laughs> that, if that hasn't been done, that's an obvious uh, way to turn to children. Like yeah, exactly. I like it. I like well, it. really, isn't that our purpose as adults? <laughs> And I think following in the success of Operation through, even through modern day, like a lot of children's games more and more included these battery components, which I don't think we're going to really spend that much more time on kids games, but it is a common thread there. Kids like things that make noise it's and so flash weird. and stuff. Yeah, because I mean, uh, Operation is is so simple. It's basically you are holding a little metal prongs, and if they touch the metal sides of the container, the guy's nose lights up. And he buzzes at you. And he buzzes at you. Yeah, now, I think that buzzer sound is actually a big point. Uh, although, honestly, if we're doing a new version, if you get a little, little audio chip in there and have him scream in agony, that would be... Uh, that would be a great traumatic tool. So apparently the original prototype, when the guy was showing it off to uh, Milton Bradley, apparently it also sparked. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> that seems like a little yeah. much. Right, perfect. It was the 60s, man. Kids. People were brushing their teeth with radium toothpaste to make them glow. Wait, it's, it's all fine. Seems like a little much. Is <laughs> all when did this come out in 65. relation to Londart? Uh, Londart's is in the... early, mid-70s. Right, so like sparks... To lawn, lawn darts? Like, yeah, there's all, a, a I mean, sure. direct pattern there. And we liked it that way. I mean, that's fine, I guess. Stop a lawn dart embedded in your abdomen <laughs> somewhere, right? We don't talk about that. <laughs> Codename <laughs> Sector. So, yeah, I have that as a kid, and I still have my copy. <gasps> Codename Sector was really the first electronic game. There's a computer that completely sucked down batteries. <laughs> Publisher is uh, Parker Brothers, 1977, by Robert Doyle designed. And it's really effectively a solitaire game. A little bit like the deduction part of Sonar, Captain Sonar, if you're familiar with those games. Uh, basically, there's a sub that's moving around on the board. Occasionally, it'll change directions. Each of your ships that's moving around gets to know the distance to the sub. And you basically draw it in crayon on the board to try to track the sub, then eventually get close enough to fire a torpedo at it. It's, well, that's the game. I mean, it's a, almost like an old-school basic computer game, but... Yeah, it's like it's like training the next generation of, of military forward observers to triangulate the position of an enemy and then, then destroy them. As long as that any enemy doesn't move very frequently. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I watched a video of this on uh, YouTube because I don't have a copy of it. I'd never even heard of it before, uh, Frank added it to our list and uh it's interesting in so much that you can definitely tell the the programming behind it right because just the the things you have to enter into the different punch buttons you know the the heading you're going the speed that you're going when you finally want to launch a torpedo you have to tell it what depth you're launching the torpedo which as far as i can tell is just a wild guess i don't <laughs> see any way in the game you could make a deduction about how deep the, the sub yeah was. it's been a while oh uh, but yeah there's it, like three depths and they're like i guess two <laughs> that's pretty much it yeah yeah, yeah. and then uh, they they fake you out on the the box art because they show these cool plastic submarines that they don't actually aren't in board. the game well no they're there oh, they're, 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 just... they're, they're how you who won you get oh i see <laughs> Well, you got to do something with all that injection molding. Uh, but yeah, no, the neat thing about this is this is, uh, as far as I can tell, the first 
board game that had a computer in it. And that is true. That is the first board game with a computer in it. Yeah, so it, it wasn't a great game, but it was was a little bit groundbreaking. Yeah, I did find stats on that computer. It had a, a whopping 64 bytes of memory. Ooh. And it had a 1K ROM in it. Basically like the future in your in your house. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was pretty awesome. Well, and the best part is in the 1970s, it didn't take up an entire wall, right? I Isn't know, that right? You, know, you, could, you, could have a, you could have a table that, that had this thing on it. I did want to mention uh, Stop Thief, which wasn't on our main list. It was the same guy, Robert Doyle, uh, did it for Parker Brothers in 79. Uh, and basically, this is a, a game where there is a thief running around. And the players are trying to catch them. And basically, they will indicate where on the board they're looking and they'll hear sounds based on what the thief is doing. Is he breaking a window to get into a place? Is he running away? Is he catching a train? Whatever it might be. This one I want to particularly mention because in 2017, it was redone by uh, Restoration Games with a lot of enhanced gameplay. It's in an app now, so they can keep adding new game modes and that kind of thing. There's a solitaire version and a couple different cooperative and competitive modes of play. And I think we're probably going to start seeing more of these just because, A, computers are a lot cheaper and more powerful now, so you can do a lot of things in an app when you used to be very contained. And also, nostalgia makes people give you money. Uh, so I think Kickstarter folks will be uh, jumping more on that bandwagon as we go. My entire room of Transformers disagrees. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the next interesting game to talk about is uh, Dark Tower, which was uh, made by Milton Bradley, released in 1981, designed by Roger Burton, Al Coleman, and Vincent A.A.J. Arato. And the, the game is inexperience for sure the with the original game right you have this tower in the center of the board and when you first kind of get it out it has all these buttons on it and it's not it's hyper clear kind of what they do and it makes lots of noise and moves around you have to hit hit buttons but like the gameplay is is relatively simple kind of once you narrow it down um but the fact that it kind of is keeping track of all these pieces of information about each of the players is really interesting yeah, you have a, a certain number of soldiers that you're bringing around the board in, in your quest to assault the Dark Tower, and they each consume a certain amount of food, so you have to keep track of that, and you're collecting keys, so it needs to know which ones you have and that sort of thing. It's it's There's not a lot of game there necessarily, um, but it's neat because so much of the information is being tracked in the background, and the... Uh, the sort of random element of, of you, you you know, tell the tower what you're doing and there's that sort of ominous whirring noise as it gets ready to show you what's yep. about to happen. It's like, oh, I feel like this is going to be bad. Um, so, I mean, obviously it hits me right in the nostalgia gland because I had this as a child. Uh, yeah, the design of the tower itself is amazing uh, because it uses an optical encoder to line up the pictures on the tower, has three bulbs behind to show which thing is reacting. Uh, and it was designed by a guy named John Robeson, who wrote a book called Look Me in the Eye about his details with Asperger's. He also designed uh, Gene Simmons guitars for Kiss, all those weird pyrotechnic <laughs> guitars. Um, that book is fascinating. There's some in and, interesting tie-ins in the world is all I'm going to yeah, say. It's like, yeah, yeah totally. the, the, it's like when you look at the tower, right, the way the, the specific, specific square lights up, it always looks really great, right? Like it looks really impressive and like... You know, as you're fighting a thing, it'll kind of scroll through. Hey, you're, hey, you're, you're soldiers this many. The bandits are this many. It kind of bounces back and forth, and like the way, the way it's kind of rolling dice in the background for you is really is really clever for sure. I'm gonna go ahead and say that from a modern standpoint, like I sat down at this game having literally no no knowledge of it, and 
I, after having played through the game, still have no idea how the combats work. Like, when when you go <laughs> into having a more fight, guys is better is functionally what we know about the combat system. Yeah. Right. When you go into a fight, you either will kill half of the bandits or lose some number. One guy. Of, one guy. Okay. Yeah. One one soldier, and it will show you those numbers. And you don't really interact with the combat in any way. It's all the computer doing Except it. you can flee if it's going really badly. Sure, you can flee it when it goes really badly, but like that mechanism was not readily apparent. It was, I'm sure, wonderful for 1981. Well, but... I mean, at, at the time, that was the beauty of it, is that you don't really know what's going on. It's it, The tower is mysterious and inscrutable. That's fair. It was definitely inscrutable. That is for sure. Uh, the... The interesting thing about it, though, is even though it had this computer with it, it also gave each player these little pegboards to keep track of their stuff. And you could, in essence, use one of your turns to say, okay, computer, what do you think I have? Because I'm let clearly me compare wrong. my notes. <laughs> and every time, without fail, I would take that action, I would be way off. I'd be like, <laughs> No food, half the number of soldiers I had, but don't worry, I've got 87 gold. And I'm like, where did I get all this from? When I was a kid, I never had to check that. But yeah, at least when playing it now, I had no clue. <laughs> yeah, keeping track of, of the food is a pain. The game is random, is essentially random, the, the board game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if you, if you get really hung up on winning the game, I can see that being a real problem. But I, I'd never played it before we played it. I had an absolute blast. The combination of the mechanism of the tower, the whirring that goes on inside of it, the lighting up effects, and just, hey, I walked around in the forest and I got lost for three consecutive turns. <laughs> True. Or, or, uh, the tower Brian. is a dick. Yeah, <laughs> Brian getting plague every other turn. Every, oh, my God. Uh, you never really knew what was coming up, and it kept you, I don't know, it kept me very engaged because laughing at everyone else's misfortune was very interesting. Yeah, it, it's by no means a great game, but it is certainly an iconic period of its time. The art is also amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the same artist that did uh, Dragon Master, which was a card game from that period, and I cannot Correct. think of his name. Uh, yes, Low, and I wish I knew his name. And yeah, but it's a really nifty sort of art nouveau there is a of kind of nouveau look to all the stuff very yeah. very groovy and like 10 or 12 year old me would have loved that game oh yeah so yeah when i got that in christmas i was practically drooling i mean first of all that was like the largest box any of us had ever seen i think game. it was actually no it's as tiny. Big bigger than gloomhaven <laughs> no i think it's actually smaller than gloomhaven really? okay. i've got it and looked on the table it's like next to something like GKR and it's like oh yeah it's not that big anymore everything looks smaller when you look back but yeah I mean you can you can certainly get the game in an app form on uh, on iOS or Android it's not the same without the tower sitting there taunting you it does have the motor sound though which I very much that's well yeah that that is that is essential <laughs> that's actually I, I love we actually pulled up the app while we were playing the game and the app gave an option to activate the classic sound effects mm -hmm. which i mean again you you've said it before nostalgia just makes people want to give you their money so exactly, exactly. the artist's name was bob pepper thank you oh man bob pepper uh yeah so great great stuff from from the art standpoint just a just a fun game there's also uh we'll put a link in the show notes there's a, a great old commercial from orson wells talking about his assault on the dark tower which is is fascinating
So the next one on our list is the sort of 800-pound gorilla of computer and board game tie-ins. And I say that because I think the box may literally weigh 800 pounds. That's only because it's it's entirely paper. You're carrying like a printer, a ream of printer paper around with you. Yes, exactly. So this this little epic is called Star Saga. Star Saga 1 Beyond the Boundary is the first game in the series. 1988, Master Play Publishing from Rick Dutton, Walter Freitag, and Andrew Greenberg, uh, better known as Wardena the Wizard from the Wizardry series. It is basically a space exploration and trading paragraph game. It's got 13 or 14 booklets of text uh, that talk about the different adventures and stuff that you'll go through, combined with a map, you know, in the board game format that you're traveling around, and an MS-DOS, or Apple, uh, Apple II? Was it even Apple II? I think it was just GS. Oh, right. And it's written in BASIC, so yeah. you can actually look at the source code. Uh, but anyway, the, the game sort of keeps track of what you're carrying on your ship, what you're trading. It keeps track of where you are. It randomly assigns planets to various locations. Um, and basically, you, you go in and program your turn, and then it will tell you what happens. You stop in this space because you have to fight uh, Silverbeard the Pirate, or, uh, har, har, har. Yes, that, that jerk. Now, I want to make clear that this is not a game that you sort of get together one afternoon and say, hey, let's play Sarsaka. Uh, it is probably, what, 40 to 60 hours to yeah, play through so. the game, I would yeah. guess. So, I think it's about 30 or 40. Yeah, yeah some, somewhere in that, that neck of the woods. So funny, it's funny enough in Board Game Geek, the, the playtime is listed as 240 to 3,600 minutes. <laughs> oh, yes. Their system is not set up for the, a yeah. game that's a length of Star Saga. So it's just like, I don't, listen, I don't know, man. Like, forever? It's hard to be <laughs> sure. 240 minutes? I don't think, maybe a single-player game you could get through in four hours. But, uh, there is one thing. I mean, the the game is is better with more people. I think just because you you get to see more of the galaxy better. The downside of it is basically everybody puts in their turn, and then you get your results, and it will say, "All right, read these three paragraphs," which may be in three different books. And so while everybody else is putting their turns in, you're going through and reading all the text. And there may be a time when you're waiting for you know someone to finish with book C, so you can get book C. Um, and also, if people are slower readers or have analysis paralysis and sort of stare at the screen for a long time, it can slow the game down a lot. That said, the writing is fantastic. The storyline is a lot of fun. And it's, it's if you're like me and you're willing to commit a ludicrous amount of time and you have an MS-DOS emulator on your, your computer... It is fantastic. The game is, is long out of print. It was never all that successful because it was big and expensive and complicated. But you can get all of the books in PDF format. You can get the, the code and emulator. You can get all the things you need to play the game. So uh, it, it's really fascinating, though, because we just talked about how Dark Tower tracks your character's inventory and your stats. And if I'm remembering correctly, Star Saga does tracks everything it tracks everything so it's really taken that purpose of the technology that we saw in dark tower and it expanded it vastly can the game be played without the physical components no because all the paragraphs are the physical well, components. Like, but without the map that'd be hard because uh, it'd be hard to work out how to navigate from sure one planet okay, to the other. okay but you you don't actually need a physical map with a digital map to yeah, know how to get fine, places. But, and, and yeah, but like the, you, you need the triangle grids, right? Because they are very specific. It's like, hey, if I want to get from planet A to planet B, I got to go blue, green, red, right. yellow. Right, I do remember that. Okay. Uh, one one thing that I kind of saw as an innovation, and we'll see this pop up in a couple of these different uh, electronic games, 
is the ability to to save the state of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you are not going to play this game in one sitting. No. Yeah, <laughs> and they also have the ability to take out a particular player. You could actually put them in suspended animation so that you could, everyone else could continue playing the game if they weren't there for whatever, you know, the next gaming session. Yeah, which is nice, right, given the game can play up to 60 hours, right? So that's what, like, five or six sessions, yeah. like, of eight-hour sessions. Yeah. So, so I got to admit, when we first got this game back in 1988, we did, in fact, play it almost in one session. We started a long weekend, started playing that night, you know, let's see what this game's like. And then we played until 2 or 3 a.m., kind of dragged ourselves to bed got up the next morning and immediately went back to playing it for the next three days <laughs> and <laughs> they did not it's, eat it's they my favorite game spook. i played it three times it's it's amazing yeah yeah the writing is really amazing in that game uh, and the really sad part about it is that it was a, a three-part storyline uh star saga one and star saga two were both released they're available online you can still find copies on ebay periodically with the physical books star saga three was never released so we don't know how the story ends, and it's killing me. How completed so, was it? Do you know, Frank? Hmm? Do you know uh, how it was actually three? completed and was uh, on an eight-inch disc, which has currently been lost. Uh, I was in contact with Rick Dutton's wife, Gray Kell, at one point just to see if there was anything left. So a little bit on the history of this. Uh, Rick Dutton and Walt Freitag, they're heavily involved with LARPs. Um, and in particular, they did a, a series of LARPs called Recon for Society for Interactive Literature in the West. Um, there is one other published Star Saga thing called Nexus, which is a 40-player LARP for a weekend, uh, which Chaosium published. Uh, and they published something else by SIL, or were going to publish, uh, which I have a copy of. Of course you do. I, of course I do. <laughs> But yeah, so the re- the writing's so good, and it feels like a universe existed because they'd been running that for years in various LARPs. And so all the super slip and all those items, face deal, are in their LARPs. Nice. So let me get this straight, Frank. Somewhere out there, there's a, you said, 8-inch floppy disk with the entirety of Star Saga 3 on it just waiting Maybe. to be found? Maybe. If it can be read, which admittedly we could assemble something. I yeah. mean, come on, that's clearly going to be in like some Fallout. Yeah, there's there's a quest now. involving this, <laughs> yeah. you know it. Yeah, that would be like my holy grail. Yeah, exactly. Whose turn is it next? Answer me. Yes, yes gamekeeper. <laughs> I banish you to the black hole. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So clearly, we're, we're going to be discussing uh, Nightmare, also known as Atmosphere. Uh, this was released in 1991 uh, by a couple of cowboys. Um, they were self-published, actually, and Village Roadshow. Yes, um, the movie people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was uh, designed by Philip Tanner. Are you sure about that, maggot? <laughs> no, my gatekeeper. I think Chieftain actually did the original Canadian publishing. The Mattel did one. and it, There was a ton of them. Yeah. What, what's fascinating about this is it, it tracks nothing. I I think as far as the evolution of electronic components in board games, this is actually a, a huge step back in the 1990s. This is an evolutionary dead end. <laughs> but it makes up for it in abuse. Oh, yes, it does. I mean, it does. To, to be clear, this is, is not actually a game. This is an activity. 
there is theoretically a series of goals that you can accomplish to win and with a small number of players it might happen but for those of you who haven't had the the joy of dealing with the gatekeeper (laughs) basically the game consists of a board and a bunch of deck of cards and you're, you're wandering around the board and uh, a video that is playing in the background. This was back in the days of, of VHS. And it's basically an hour-long video of dramatic music and a timer on the board. And periodically, the gatekeeper will show up and hurl abuse at you and uh, occasionally give you challenges, roll certain numbers on the dice, or banish you to the black hole, or you know make you take other people's cards or keys. And it's just... The video obviously doesn't change. It's the same every time, but... Uh, the randomness of where you are and who's in a given position at the time will will make it somewhat different. It's really all about the video and the wonderful, hideous overacting of the uh, the gatekeeper. Yeah, himself. the gatekeeper chews the garbage out of the scenery the <laughs> entire time. It is amazing how into this extremely silly role that the gatekeepers is in. It's just it's amazing. Well, and it it definitely has this feel of like B raid film that hell it's not even b-rate film this is like actually c-rate film there is a modern movie called beyond the gate with barbara crampton which basically emulates her playing a uh, character in a 90s era video board game (laughs) and it it it's so campy that there it is not at all surprising that this is a cult classic because it I mean, in your description, you say you're wandering around the board. No, you are literally rolling move. There is no decision matrix. Nope. Hell, I spent the first like 15 minutes of the game in the black hole. There were so many of these. There were probably on the order of 50, 60, maybe more video wow. board games during. This. I mean, they were just crawling out. There was a Wayne's World one. Um, mm. You got um, poor Michael Dorn. Oh, no, there's um, this next-gen one? Yes, there's a next-gen with Michael Dorn screaming at you about the Jeffree Tube. I may still have it. It's awful. They're, the thing is, they're all terrible. I mean, really I mean, they had all to, terrible. They, you can't have any interactivity. Yeah. But, you know, basically, the, the home video was the technology of the time period. Oh, it's so, so great. You just had to, had to chew that up and, and get as many games out of it as you could. Well, and they had to be dirt cheap to produce. I mean, a guy standing in a it's black a room, like not even a set. The the background behind him is black. Yes. Black he background, had some terrible costume. So there's a green light once or twice. A little LED timer in the corner. You're good to go. I mean, you yeah. could definitely tell they splurged on a couple of effects where the uh, gatekeeper would ask a player to get real close to him. And then there would be a skull overlay on his face. That's sophisticated 80s video editing. Oh, yeah. Hey, Nightmare 2 got a whole music video. Oh, man. That don't, sounds... Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so definitely a uh, an acquired taste. Uh, you know, the videos are all out on YouTube. It's, it's probably worth at least looking at them to realize how silly they are. But uh, I don't know that I would recommend tracking down a copy of the game. And for how silly they were, I had a blast playing. Oh, this sure, game. It's, like, a, it's a great fun activity. Once every couple years, it's <laughs> all it's all on that video. It's how good the gatekeeper. So when we were playing Atmosphere, it really reminded me of the community episode where they're playing pile of bullets, right? Like the the person will come on the street and say, "Hey, partner." Uh, uh, twister north and they all stand up and start spinning in a circle and then they pull up some cards they say i have a blue card no i have a red card no i win it feels a lot like that it's just like total chaos nonsense insanity all the time 
So the next game we're going to talk about is Alchemists, which was a 2014 uh, Shet game designed by, I'm going to butcher this name, Mattis Kotry. Sure. Yep. It's Czechoslovakia, and I got, I got no clue on that one. Alchemist is a, um, it's a deduction game that actually required the players to use an app to play the game. Um, and I, I'm going to go ahead and make the definitive statement that this was absolutely the first game that required an app in order to play it. Send me all your hateful emails. To right. Yeah. So the, the premise of the game is, is, you know, there's worker placement and stuff around it, but sort of the, the app based heart of the game is a deduction process where you're taking these various alchemical uh, elements and saying, all right, well, if I mix willow bark with a toad, uh, what do I get? And basically the app knows for any given, you know, instance of the game, well, in this case, you get a positive blue potion. And so the, the app is basically keeping track of how these elements interact. And that concept right there in of itself is a really cool idea. The fact that you are... You are mixing these elements and getting a potion, and the ingredients will have a a set effect on potions that are always true. Like, I love thematically what this game is trying to do. Also, the app does a really good job of being really easy to interact with and feeling really clever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because literally, you put the camera and show it the two cards that you're mixing. I think that the, the problem with Alchemist, at least that I have, is that it, it takes that deduction element of other games. And, and the deduction in Alchemist feels really good. It's a little hard to pick up at first, but once you get it, solving it feels really good. I've attempted to try this game three times, and every time we pull out the manual, we start going through it and explaining it to the people. It never, ever finishes. I'm sure it's... Like, play with us sometime, we'll, we'll show you, yeah, but not I'm, Mike. I'm, because... I'm more than happy to play it. Like, I, I conceptually like the game. Honestly, my biggest problem with the game is actually in the worker placement elements. Right. Like, they're, they actually wear the game down a little bit. And, like, there's this whole strategy of, like, just playing artifacts instead of playing the potion game. And in a lot of cases, it's a little bit more effective if the right artifacts are in play than playing the potion game. And you can just win with artifacts, which feels kind of sad because really the core mechanic is this potion making thing well and therein lies the problem with this game um and it took me several plays to to get to this point but the game itself is not about figuring out what ingredients will produce which potions that is half of this game in addition to the deduction aspect in this game you've also got a worker placement game in which you are trying to publish your findings at the non-patent What's the the, the totally I'm... not Hogwarts wizard school. Yes, that yeah, one. The, the great part is that ultimately your goal in the game is to get tenure, which I think is hilarious. Um, now, in order to do that, you don't have to know shit about nothing. You could just start publishing your findings that may or may not be wrong. It's on other players to debunk your publishings, which is, I guess, really true to life. Like, <laughs> that works. I Why not? Um, no, no, no. Vaccinations totally cause autism. It says so right here. Right. So this game, I think, has an identity crisis that after playing it several times becomes readily apparent where what I want to be doing is this deduction where I'm figuring out what the ingredients will create, which potions. But what I need to be doing to win this game is not that. And I do I don't like that feeling. 
if you spend too much time trying to figure out every single ingredient, you will not score points. Yeah. And as a as a logic game person, that is annoying to me because I, I want to complete the grid. Mm-hmm. I want to figure out how everything interacts. There is an expansion that I haven't played with that... Me neither. Okay. I, I haven't picked that up one up, mostly just because... Well, I mean, you're not a big fan of the base game. Exactly. So. Yeah. So one of the games we got to try in preparation for this uh, discussion was XCOM the Board Game, released in 2015 by Fantasy Flight, designed by Eric Lang. Uh, I actually, I, I did not realize how many of his games I actually own. Yeah, he Tur- is turns really out prolific. He does <laughs> the word prolific has yeah. new meaning. But essentially, you're you're operating as different divisions of the XCOM, the, was it the UFO Defense Force, I think they call it, mm-hmm. the original game, and it requires an app. And in this app, there's one specific uh, officer. The central officer is managing this app. And through this app, you're given different types of information. You're given where the aliens are landing. You're given what phase of the game you're in. And you're given a time limit to accomplish the different goals that the different officers have to accomplish. So when you're deploying satellites, when you're deploying interceptors to shoot down UFOs, when you're selecting what science uh, things you want to research, all of these have a timer that's built into the app that you have to hit you know, acknowledge we've completed it, or if you go over that time limit, the game starts punishing you. And there's also, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, sort of budgeting elements that come into play. You know, it's like, I need more energy for my satellites. Well, we don't have more energy for the satellites because we need to put it into science. And there's a lot of, of entertainment value to be had in arguing over who gets the energy. When you're fighting for the survival of the Earth, having a balanced budget is very important. Sacrifices must be made. <laughs> so important. Now, I love the asymmetrical nature of that game, even going beyond just the the app, which does such a fantastic job running the game for you. The fact that each player is doing something that is drastically different than each other, and yet they also interact. Like, as the scientist, it is your job to provide the other players with the things that they need to succeed. When you're coordinating the budget, like you have to be communicating and talking with each other player with their needs. And if any one of those players kind of fails in what they're doing, the whole thing can just spiral out of control. And it keeps the the hectic pace of the game really going forward because you essentially have 15 to 25 seconds for each of these decisions to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a pause mechanic where you have a limited amount of time where you can pause the game and try and talk with your your mm-hmm. your, uh, your uh, different divisions but if you exceed that uh, i think you start getting into something they call scrambled transmissions where the information you're presented in the app starts to change or you get imperfect information yeah and i really like the the way the an- app interacts with the entire gameplay right like the app is really clever it's put together really well so like yeah you have to make a decision if you don't make a decision in enough time you start eating into your pause time and your pause time is really useful because it, it comes at the end. It's like, hey, now we're going to kind of finish this phase and you can spend all your pause time making sure you've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's because ultimately, you know, you you kind of set up this entire plan and then you determine did this plan work or not. Well, and they do a really interesting job with the um, person who controls the app because they give that... Uh, and I think that's the person who plays the role of the commander, uh, central, officer. Uh, central officer, has occasionally the option to look at things that are coming up. So they can more or less plan to a certain degree on those things, but it is imperfect information. And the app can change on the fly depending on how well or bad you are doing. If you have 
too many spaceships in orbit around the planet, you might receive your budget at the very end of the transmission. And then you figure out, oh, crap, we don't have money for any of this, which is great. There's a lot of clever design going on in that game, just in general, even apart from the app implementation, because it really completely gets rid of the co-op quarterbacking problem. Yes. There's too much stuff going on in the game, and there's way too many elements scattered around the board to deal with that in real time. Yeah, I can't keep track of what you're doing. I'm, I'm too focused on myself. It, it's a lot of fun. I, I think it's it's one of those games that is stressful to play in a fun way. Because it's, there's, there's constantly all this stuff that needs to be done. And, and the addition of that little real-time element, I think, really adds a, uh, a, a nice frisson of tension. God, that was pretentious. Yeah, it's one of, <laughs> it's one of the few real-time games that I actually like. like right? Because like, most real-time games are not as heavy as XCOM is. It is it does it, because of the app, it, it has this really clever kind of Venn diagram of both a heavy board game but also a board game that takes place in real-time. And there are a few games that accomplish Space that. Alert is another Space one. Space Alert is another one, exactly. And, and it's funny, right? Because this app, in essence, is really just a script. Just like in Atmosphere, those VHSs are a script. But now with modern technology, they can take that script and scramble it, depending on how you're doing. Which is a, a fascinating evolution of that technology. And I think it it is the really... I can't see how this is going to get better, but I am excited. Yeah, if you look at both XCOM and Space Alert, they do something that none of the other co-op or even app-enabled games really go for, which I'm kind of confused about, in that they phase up your real time so that it's locking down your decisions. And then the actual resolution, final, all the heavy rules are in an untimed phase afterwards. And those are the only two games I can even think of that did that. Yeah, it's such a clever idea, too. Yeah. And it works so yeah. well. It really does. So the next game we wanted to talk about was Mansions of Madness, specifically the second edition. Yes. No one no one should ever talk about the first edition if you can <laughs> yeah, help it. Just forget that ever happened. Yeah, exactly. Just It's just Mansions it, of Madness. It's sort of the opposite of the Highlander problem. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. There can only be the second one. The right. first one, let's not talk about it. Uh, released in 2016, uh, published obviously by Fantasy Flight and designed by Nikki Valens. It's a really clever game. So, like, let, let's touch first on the first fa- Mansions of Madness for a second. Um, so, in that game, right, most of the players are a group of explorers in kind of a specifically Lovecraftian setting, where you're like in specifically the Fantasy Flight Lovecraftian setting. Which, for those of you who don't know, Fantasy Flight has kind of created this specific set of characters that exist inside their. They're in Arkham Horror and Eldritch yep. Horror and the Call of Cthulhu card game. Yeah, all, all of the, all of their materials, right? Is all, all this set of characters. So you're playing the set of characters and you're exploring some location and trying to solve some kind of puzzle or try to stop some, and obviously trying to stop some kind of world-ending horror. In the first Mansions of Madness game, there was a GM player that would kind of do a bunch of work to set up the game at the start, and it was very difficult to lose if you were the game master and you wanted to win because you got to make some decisions about where certain things would be placed and you could just place them in such a way that it would be very very hard for the players to be successful in the time they had allotted. Yeah, you really had to approach it as sort of a, a role-playing game GM and that your objective is to tell a good story and not to win the game. Which is hard for a board game. 
It was also easy to screw up setup and, you know, one card out of place. Yes, there's a very detailed list. In this scenario, if you've chosen bad guy A and, and motivation C, then token 37 needs to go in room 12. And if one of those was out of place, everything went horribly wrong. So in the second edition, they said, well, this setup is really complicated. Let's just move all of this to an app. And then, hey, once we've moved it to an app, let's start taking advantage of the fact that since it's in an app, like we can do even more off the wall things or like make decision trees that are so complicated. A human being couldn't parse it, but like, hey, it's just a script a robot can parse really easily. And, you know, that's really when I think the game became a game that I'd be willing to play. Right. And it's like the second edition game is really great, right? Like you... You're exploring this location and the the game will put like, hey, there's this thing you should go look at here and this thing you should go look at here. And like I haven't done a lot of like replaying of scenarios, but I so I don't know how different they are on replay, but I would imagine there's a fair bit of flexibility in there in terms of of where things are, at least in some of the scenarios. There was a mystery one that we did and and wound up messing something crucial up Mm -hmm. and actually went back to try and figure out what we had missed and the scenario was the, the the villain of the piece was different than the one we had. Oh, interesting, so, interesting. Yeah, I think the tiles will change, too, between... Places. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, it's generally, like, it? left, oh. right, small changes, not huge. Mm, They're pretty yeah. close. But it's, you know, it's really well put together. There's some sound effects and voiceover uh, on the app, which are generally quite well done. Right, and that's actually huge, because I don't think that actually having a voiceover in a game like that had been implemented before Mansions of Madness. And... It, I mean, they're not great, but they do add a level of Well, I mean, theme. they're professionally acted and produced, which I think is better than you get in some games. Atmosphere. Uh, <clears throat> um, that was an actor who was paid. That was professional. He went on to do other stuff. I mean, he was a real actor. He has an IMDb page. Yeah, yes. totally. <laughs> so clearly he's a real actor. Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, it, it's well put together and the game knows, you know, what players are in the game. So sometimes if a bad thing happens between turns, it will say, well, this specific character is now having this thing happen to them. So it, it feels very personal uh, when the game is picking on you. I will say the one thing that I, I understand why this happens, I don't love it, is the fact that the app will actually tell you what equipment you start with. And it seems very limited because not every person is guaranteed to have a thing. Um, I, I don't have any recommendations on how to change that. But like just as a board game player, I always have a feeling when I sit down to play Mansions of Madness that like, oh, man, this character I took who I thought was going to be really cool and fun to play was utterly useless in this investigation. I don't know if I've ever had that feeling. That's no, maybe it's just you, Mike. Maybe yeah, it's, maybe it's just me. The, the last set of this we played, we were at the school, and my character had a power that activated when with spells. Like, I think she could get an extra die when she played a spell or something like that. I had exactly zero spells. Yeah, it is definitely true that in Mansions of Madness, unlike let's uh, some of the other games like Eldritch Horror or Arkham or really any of the games in the series, you don't, like, have a bunch of things. That's true. Right, in Mansions of Madness things are actually pretty rare spells are really rare right like you might start with one but like you probably won't you might find one during the course of the game maybe but like stuff in general is pretty rare yeah, yeah. like hey one of the you'll you'll find like a an axe you're like oh man an axe yes. that's really awesome whereas like 
you know, if you think about like Arkham or Eldritch, right, the scale that they're at, it's like, oh yeah, an axe is just a thing you find all the time. Yeah, and and there is certainly an amount of random in there. It's like, you know, one person, the guy who happens to be in the room where there's a book on the table and reads the book, you get a spell. Well, I'm the, the big hulking bruiser. What am I going to do with a spell? Answer, fail to cast it. Right. And this is a problem that I experience in most of the Fantasy Flight app-driven games is that time is really short in the game. So even if you are the bruiser who picks up the spell, you don't have time within the game to give that to the spellcaster who might be on the other side of the, the board. Yeah, you tend to have to fan out to explore all the things that you need to explore. And if the wrong person is in the wrong place, it can come back to bite you pretty, oh, pretty yeah. hard. It's still a it's still a fun game. I don't want to make it sound like yeah. No, and I feel like every time we we've played it, we certainly get, every time I've played it, certainly I get the feeling that I'm like, man, we're really close to losing when we win, which I mm-hmm. really yeah. appreciate. Yeah. Right, and like the the game does a good job of of presenting that feeling, which you know the original game also tried to present, but like was just so easy for the human GM to totally mess you over yeah. as opposed or, to this. Or just mess up the setup of the game. Right. right, as opposed to this where it's like, it's probably equally as hard, but it feels because it's a computer that's doing it, right? Like, what, are you going to get mad at a computer for making your game hard? All no. the yes. time. Joe, have you ever played Dark Souls? <laughs> uh, listen, Mina and Orlando are done is all I'm saying. So uh, one thing I do like about this app is I love the way it reveals the the game board as you play, like the way that it opens up and changes. And that is all controlled by the app. Like I love me any board game that has an expanding world as you play. But also uh, the second edition is so much easier to teach. Really, you can kind of point to stuff and go, this does this. You know, it's an action to interact with something point at someone and that's all all they need to play i mean yeah basically here is the number of dice you roll for these various tests if you want to look at that thing tap on that thing yeah and you're done yep yeah the the app makes the game playable i would argue (laughs) i would i would not disagree with that assessment uh one other thing i would say about it is that um there are a lot of expansions and if you have expansions for the first edition of the game you can actually port a lot of that stuff over you basically tell the app what products you own and it will make the appropriate adventures and room tiles and everything available the miniatures are pretty but they're still fiddly they don't stay on their bases and the bases have the stat cards there's a lot of pick up and put down nonsense. actually the stats are oh you're right the stats are on the minis they and so you need to print off a summary of the mini stuff and lose the bases yeah I think they're also not labeled, so you're taking a shot in the dark as to whether or not this miniature is actually the one you're well, fi- yeah, there's, fighting. Well, yeah, there's in the base game and in some of the expansions, there's a little pictorial thing, you know, this is a Night Gaunt, this is a Biaki, this is a great old one. But a lot of them are just like, um, no, uh, uh, you know, pick this uh, pick this thing. Uh, Amigo, sure, that's one of the things on a big base. I guess it'll be this. Yeah, I mean, really, the weird thing is there, the tiles matter just so you can see the layout of the board, but don't really matter. The minis don't matter at all. Yeah, the minis Which is a no shame, mini. because they're pretty, and I, I would would kind of like to paint them, but yeah. uh, it's too much work. Well, that's funny, because that's actually the exact opposite of what the electronic board games from the 70s did, where, like, this app does not track where you are on the in the game world. Like, it does not track any of your inventory. It does not track any of your character stats. It doesn't care about any of that. I would argue, I think, like, a lot of, like, the modern games are very similar to that, right? Electronic games in the modern age have kind of stopped 
tracking your state because they kind of realize that like, hey, I don't need to track all of your state. You can track most of your state in the real world. And that's kind of the point of a board game. I will track the pieces of your state that are important for the randomness I'm trying to produce, but not track any of the pieces that like, I don't actually care I, about. I don't know yeah. who's carrying the axe and it doesn't And matter. it doesn't matter, right? Well, And I think that's a, a much better design than some of those earlier games that we talked about. Right, because like I think about XCOM, right? Like the thing the app tracks, like it tracks a fair number of things, but like it doesn't track, like for example, at the bottom, right, you have your panic track and like it doesn't track the specific position of, of every token. It's like, hey, what buckets are these in? That's all That's all the information yeah. I really need. It doesn't track what cards the scientist has produced. It doesn't track how many uh, UFOs are on on the planet only tracks how many UFOs are in this are in our are like in orbit around Earth, right? Because it only cares about the things that it needs to generate the randomness. It doesn't care about the things that like aren't around its generation of randomness, right? That it just doesn't care. That's just such a, a weird difference. And I'm and kind of wondering at what point in time did that transition happen exactly? Because there is kind of that nineties era dearth of games that had any sort of tracking electronic component i feel like it's it's as the games matured right because like i feel like when the games be as the games continue to become games they kind of determine like okay well if we have electronic component what does that mean right because it's not like because like i don't want it to be because like the universe we live in now right there are an infinite number of video games on every mobile device that exists in the universe right and so like how do we differentiate ourselves Right, because like it used to be, we would differentiate ourselves by having an app, an app like a computer in this game that would do things, and right. that was it, a it doesn't matter what it did, the fact that it was there exactly. Know, was but enough. but now the differentiator is we have board game components to this application, as opposed to we have a board game with an application, right? So like, be, it became that I feel like when the differentiator became we have board game components instead of the differentiator is we have a computer. Right. We're also hopping kind of markets here. When we talk about the 70s and 80s, 90s games even, those are mass market games designed for kids, families, people that apparently can't be trusted. Um, <laughs> and the, these later, more sophisticated games where they're saying, oh, these are gamers. Yeah, they know how to keep track of their stuff. And it's interesting because a lot of times when I'm playing a game that has a lot of fiddly tracking and calculations going on in the background, I will say, wow, I wish there was an app that did all of this in the background. And that seems to be sort of the opposite of where a lot of these are doing is like, I don't I don't care about keeping track of all your stuff, human. Uh, you keep track of your own stuff. I'm just going to tell you what happens. So, yeah, if you actually want a game that keeps track of everything for you, <laughs> there is World of Yoho, which uh, 2016 Yellow Designers Volumique. I don't even think we get a real name there. Yeah, it's a, it's a but it sounds studio. very French. Oh, yeah, it is totally French. World of Yoho is interesting because literally they kickstarted this as an app and a board, and that's all you get. Oh, wait, no, no, you get the all-important tiny little stand-ups that can stand in for phones, so you can play it on one phone, or you can play it with your phones as the pieces. Dun, you dun, get a little dun. figurehead to put on your phone. It's awesome. I just love the the idea that like hey 10 years from now like phone designs will be different and this game will just not make any sense to anyone. <laughs> I'm not sure it makes sense now. Uh, but, it makes uh, some sense. It's like what are the core mechanics here? 
so really, uh, it's more about the tech. The world of Yoho is a pick up and deliver where you're moving around. You have piratey adventures. You battle each other. You can pick up stuff in missions at port and then go to places and have some kind of skill role to do those missions. If you played Merchants and Marauders or any pirate kind of questy game, you kind of know what you're going for here. Uh, now, differences. I, yeah, I, I will hand it to Yellow. Um, the production value on this board game is top notch like the graphic design on this game is colorful it's bright the animations translate through the phone and show up really well like they did a fantastic job with the production of this game yeah it's worth noting uh when you're using the your phone as the boat it essentially functions as if it was a piece of glass and it's showing you exactly what's underneath your phone apparently they took into um, account the sizes of the phones you're running this on. So it is essentially perfectly mirroring what's below your phone. So it makes it, it's impressive effect on the table. And, you know, of course they're putting overlays on that. So now you can see your boats, you can see the... Oh, look, there's a crack in there. Right, they, they actually animate the board through the phone. So it's it's more than just the window That's that you're true. looking through. And it's... put little animated details. Also, unlike a lot of the games we're talking about, this game is designed for multiple phones. They all join the same Wi-Fi network. One of them, or somehow one of them is a server that keeps the state of the game. And they're all talking to each other. If you start a battle, you each pick up your phone and do your planning for the battle on your phone. And it's talking to the other phone. Then you you put the phones down and you watch watch the battle battle, play out. Part of it on each phone, yeah. And I think they uh, take a page from some app-based games such as uh, Space Team, where they have phones talking to each other uh, in a similar networking situation there. Yeah, but uh, Yoho is, a, let's call it a little bit more stable than Space Team. Space That's Team fair. is a little flaky. That's fair. I love that Space is, Team. That is the point of Space Team. I understand, <laughs> but it is a little flaky. It's true. It's been a lot better lately. The, the, the patch we should play some Space Team. I we like Space Team a lot. Yeah, as is World of Yoho as a game is a little too complicated and a little too long for what's there. It is a great thing to look at for the tech and fiddle with, which is actually what we did for it. I've played the full game. And even the short game was like two and a half hours, and it's not that fun. (laughs) Because of all the elements, it feels more like you're playing a phone game than an actual board game. Like, outside of the phones being physically on a map that you're moving around, there's really no other board game elements, no other physical elements. Mm -hmm. There are no cards. Yeah, it felt like I was playing an app that I happen to put down on a map every once in a while. (laughs) Which is really interesting. Like, personally, I feel like that's almost going too far in that direction. I I agree with that. Like, though, I don't know. I mean, like, I think there's something really special about the first time that you put your phone down on a square and then move it to the next square and watch the stuff that your phone is eclipsing show up on your phone. It's just, it's an extremely clever effect. It's a very cool tech demo. Um, I don't think think it quite works as a game no it to- but I mean, it's really cool well I, it I totally think, works as a game. i mean it works but it's not a game that i have a strong desire to play yeah true. i think it's maybe like mystic veil vale, which is like it's a tech demo i'd love to see the next thing that comes out of this idea but this one is like the start of a thing not the you know not, not the thing not itself. the thing itself now let's talk about drop mix Ooh. Uh, which is uh a, a really an interesting new twist on app-based gaming i really like it because i'm a i'm a musician and i'm kind of a a sucker for this kind of thing uh it was a 2017 release from hasbro 
they don't actually list a designer, but it came from Harmonix, who are the the rock band folks and and the folks behind Guitar Hero and all that. Frequency stuff. and amplitude. Thank you. Ah, yes, yes, yes. sure. Basically, it's a game in which you have uh, teams of players who are sort of combining and remixing parts of various songs into um, sort of a, a mashup kind of thing. There are different instruments that are different colors, and you have to play instruments the appropriate colors, and the app will basically say, all right, now you need to play a red card. Now you get extra points if you play a, a vocal card, which is is yellow or whatever it might be. And these are a wildly diverse set of songs that they have there and the mixes that it because it's actually playing the song that has the vocals from Evanescence with the the drums from a from a Jay-Z song or whatever it might be yeah, like, all of you the guitar line line from cake and yeah like, ex- you know. exactly actually, it's like they don't always work well together, but it's amazing that they work at all, that the game finds a way to mush these together. Before we get too far into how the game is played, though, like I think we should talk a little bit about just how the technology works, because it's really simplistic, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's really sophisticated. Well, I mean, it, it depends on def- how you define simplistic. It is using simplistic elements. So all the cards have RFID chips inside. They are RFID chips, yeah. yeah. And you always, can see that in... I always confuse RFIDs with the other ones. And you can um, see those in the cards. You can actually see them in the cards if you look at them. And so the cards don't have any power to them, right? The board is the thing that has power. You put them down on the board and it will detect, hey, what card is on top of the stack above me? And then it will use that to kind of inform the, the game situation. And you can even do that with multiple cards stacked on top of each other. No, that's, that's how the game normally plays. Like, you'll stack multiple cards on top of each other. Yeah, it's really impressive that it's able to put all that together. And like I said, the speed at which it's able to say, okay, how am I now going to replace this baseline with this other baseline that goes with all this other stuff? Uh, I, I'm really impressed. But yeah, the board itself is also at the same time talking Bluetooth back to your phone, mm-hmm. which is driving the game, playing the music. So yeah. there's a lot of radio tech going yeah, on. All there. the technology there is is really impressive. And, and the way it feels so seamless, right? Because like, I agree, Frank, the tech is all really impressive. But like, certainly from someone who's less tech experienced, like, man, this just works and it's magic. <laughs> I, I, should, I should make clear that when, when uh, Joe said someone who is less tech centric, he was looking directly at Mike. We all love Mike. We love it's him true. so much. Now, uh, this game does have a big problem that actually has nothing to do with the game itself, and that is its marketing. Oh, this gosh. Game, <laughs> this game totally missed its mark. Well, it looks like they might be recovering a little bit. Like, when we went to PAX East this year, they had a big booth, and a bunch of people were really interested in, like, oh my god, what is this game? So I think they finally kind of realized who the audience is but like you're totally correct when they released this they were like i don't i don't know who the audience for this game is uh we, we made a thing i hope someone i'm, gonna, I'm it. gonna push it out the door and see if anyone looks at it maybe i'm gonna walk away kind of and we're gonna make it a hundred bucks that yeah. game was not it's so cheap. pricey yeah it's so pricey and it requires an app and all that kind of stuff it's it's not a cheap game yeah and when it first came out the problem was the retailers didn't even know where to put it sometimes you'd find it in the toy section sometimes you'd find it in the video game section Sometimes you couldn't find it at all, but they had it somewhere. They just didn't know where. Yeah. And then they compound the problem by releasing these songs in these collection packs. They're named things like Lucky or... Uh, <laughs> Uberos. Yeah. yeah. That, that don't tell you what the music actually is, right? You're like, I don't know what Lucky music is. What do you mean by that? Or you know, So people have this market confusion of, hey, I really like this game. I like this type of music. 
what on earth is this? <laughs> I have yeah. no idea. If you're even lucky enough to see it in the wild to begin with. Yeah, and and also say that as an old person, I mean, obviously, I see the value <clears throat> that all of the music is more recent stuff that you know younger people will be into. These kids today with their rock and roll and this. I would love to see more of a music of my era in this, but I think the game has to find its commercial footing. Well, but yeah. that's, I mean, they've got like Hall and Oates, they've got Salt and Pepper, like they are branching out a little bit. It's going to be a process. And like older era. I know, I know exactly. <laughs> Mike's like, Salt and Pepper, they're so old. And you're like, what? First of all, Mike, it's Salt and Pepper. There's no R at the end. There. That's fair. But, oh my God, just, just, Go somewhere and be young. Well, look, they, pretty soon they can get the beat, the rights to the Beatles, and then oh, you'll just be able to mix the Beatles with the everything. Beatles? Which, let's Actually, face it, would be the best that. expansion of that game ever. Sure. One of Harmonix's big problems is actually getting isolated tracks. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. when you're talking about Beatles, that's mono, and there aren't separate tracks. How does not to mention a whole licensing thing? And luckily, Harmonix as a company has a ton of music licenses, so like they're kind of let's call it functionally cheating. <laughs> so like games like Rock Band, like they have this big back catalog of music, and so they can just kind of wheel it into the next thing. We're like, well. We already got the contracts for all these things. Or if we if we don't have the contracts for this specific application, we know the right people to talk to to kind of and, make and that happen and quickly. And they've proven they can do it. And of course, since they're you know it's being released by Hasbro, they also have access to awesome tracks like Transformers theme song, GI Joe theme song, yep. which do not mix with anything. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I are I was, still amazing. Yes. I, I was thinking how cool it would be if they had like a Rush version of this, but then you have to figure out how to convert all the other tracks into alternating bars of six, eight, and seven, eight time. And <laughs> that would be that would be difficult. That's the end of our main list of games we wanted to talk about. Obviously, there are a ton of uh, electronic and, and app-enabled games out there. We sort of cherry-picked the ones that we thought were the best or most interesting, but there are certainly some honorable mentions we wanted to talk about. The first of which is a weird little European... Um, I shouldn't say weird, or little for that matter. It's an interesting uh, European game that Frank has a couple copies of that we think is really cool, but none of us speak French or German, so it's hard to be sure. Just as a side note, that is a couple of copies of the same game in different languages, neither of which Frank speaks. Frank, why don't you take it from there? <laughs> yeah, I'm a little obsessed with King Arthur because it's... Among these games, one of the most magical. This is King Arthur, 2003, uh, published by Ravensburger, designed by Reiner Effen Kinesia. And the game has a new tech uh, where there are traces under the board made of conductive ink. And the electronic gizzy sits just in the middle of the board uh, and is able to read where your pawns are on the board, as well as when you touch icons around the board. They did two games with this tech uh, called Das Insel, the island, uh, and King Arthur, which was published in French, German, and Dutch because they hate us. And apparently doing a game on an English king just wouldn't be something that anyone English speaker would want. Do you have a line on a Dutch copy yet? No. Why do you speak Dutch? Yeah. No. Okay. Actually... But the, pro the problem, of course, with the game is that even I'm moderately functional in French, Sandy's fairly functional in German, but the distortion in the voice, we can't actually play the game. I have played it with a native German speaker, and it's a great game. I mean, it's kind of an enhancement of Dark Tower, where you're moving around, picking up lances, you have to get enough fame and, and all the things to go after and, and finally pull the sword out of the stone. 
but it also is fully voiced with like 53 characters. One of the things that fascinates me about this game is that in order to actually take actions, I guess, is you have to put your finger on top of your character pawn and then also a point on the game that indicates which action you're going to take. And so what you're doing is you're actually completing a circuit using your body, which is fascinating. And we said Mike wasn't tech savvy. That's not tech. That, that's just <laughs> physics. That's like you are a teacher. Somehow it also knows which pawn is which. Yeah. Oh, so well, it must have it must have different resistances in those sure. pawns. Yeah. To know, yeah, that this is der Blau Ritter. Yeah, it's, it's a game that we think is probably really cool, and someday maybe we'll be able to play it in English. Yeah. In 2014, before Alchemist, they did an app-enabled version, Mike, for Alchemist is the first game. I stand by my statements, and I'm willing to die on that hill. So, first yeah. English game. Oh, uh, yeah, true. Uh, yeah, assuming because I don't think they did the app-enabled version of King Arthur in English because Germans Why hate would they us. do that? And where does Reiner Knizia live? Uh, England. Weird. Yeah, go figure. But no, that one actually uh, watches the board from the camera on a big stand over the board and detects where your pawns move by the app. It also comes with dice for combat, and it will read the symbols on the dice and figure out what the combat results are. Uh, They're also logging all of these results in a database to be used against us in the future at some point. Not sure how, but it is happening. Carnivore, the board game. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That sounds fascinating. I'd, I'd love to see it. It's on the way. Okay. <laughs> Amazon.de is my friend. Watch for an addendum episode later. So one of the one of the games that I always think of when I think about these kinds of games is I think about Omega Virus. It was uh, done by Milton Bradley in 1992, and it is, it you know, it has a it's a it's a in essence there's like a central podium that has a talking computer. That will just like yell things at you over the course of the game and Help inform you of me. game states. Help, Help me! <laughs> it is it is a extremely silly game, but like when I well, obviously I played it when I was a kid, and it is you know holds, holds a special place in my heart for how incredibly silly it is. You know, one of the first board games I think I played that were like was electric and had this really nice space theme and all that kind of stuff. So it is a it's incredibly silly. I wouldn't recommend anyone really play it, but like I think fondly upon it in the past. So just to lure Joe, the same tech was used in Electronic Mall Madness <laughs> uh-huh. and the British only Legend of Zagor, which is a fighting mm-hmm. fantasy theme, which Ooh, that I have. That sounds fun. We had, I might have to have you break that one out. Okay. So fun fact. About... My sister did like Mall Madness. So <laughs> fun, fun fact about Electronic Mall Madness. I saw that game uh, when I was in elementary school. Some of the girls in my class were playing it. I was so fascinated by the fact that it was a board game that used credit cards and it was electronic. Like, I really wanted to go play it, but it was for girls, and elementary school me could not abide. But uh, Well, then you should have played a Megavirus. It's for boys. It's the boy yeah. version. If <laughs> only <laughs> I had known. If only. And now Monopoly does credit cards, so you can get into crippling debt. Uh, <laughs> Uh, don't talk to me about electronic monopolies. <laughs> or or indeed monopoly of any kind. That's true. We also touched on briefly earlier uh, Space Alert, which is a great game from uh, Vlada Shvatli and uh, the CGE folks. It's basically a cooperative game which has, has two different phases. There's a real-time segment in which 
the CD that came with the game, or more likely in recent versions, an app, is basically telling you periodically, all right, well, now a threat has appeared in the red zone during turn three, and, and you're basically having to constantly... You're programming your actions, basically, for the course of the game, and uh, the game is throwing various threats at you that will cause you to reconfigure your plans. And then once all of that is done, when the real-time phase is done, you go back and, and play through from the beginning all the actions you took, and you realize what horrible mistakes you made, and then someone falls down the stairs and everything is slowed down and, and the spaceship is destroyed. Communication breakdown. Pretty much. <laughs> what do you mean you didn't? jiggle the A mouse, mouse. <laughs> no, no no what do you mean we, we both took the elevator in the same phase you can't do that i'm just gonna walk over and start launching rockets and see what happens yeah, it'll be yeah, fine may, maybe it'll work but yeah that's it's a really fun game the cd that comes with the base game is is functionally an extension of the the atmosphere technology because it's basically playing a script of stuff but of course in this case you're actually drawing cards so the results you get the, the monsters that are attacking the ship are different every time well and they've actually uh i don't know if this is an official product but there is now an app that not only allows you to create i think it is scenarios but you can customize the difficulty of those scenarios which is fascinating we talked a lot about mansions of madness and how integral the app is in playing that game but i I do want to take a minute to just give a shout out to the application components of both Star Wars Imperial Assault and Descent 2nd Edition, because those have taken a game that has historically been a 1v mini and turned it into a purely cooperative game. The app will control the monsters and, again, much like the Mansions of Madness, is not so much interested in where your location or what your inventory is or your levels or any of that nonsense that's going to leave it up to the players to track and i like these adventure games and having them so that they are cooperative instead of 1v many i think just improves them vastly but again the problem with these games is that they are difficult they are like a punch in the nuts difficult um and that mostly comes down to time but like th- these games have I think a little bit too tightly wound balance mechanics to the point where if you have a bad roll or make a mistake, you just have failed the mission. They also have the same sort of mechanic as Mansions of Madness did, where you tell it what you have, what what expansions you have, and then it'll add those things to the the campaign. And sometimes you just get nailed with something that's totally OP, like, oh, here's Darth Vader and some Imperial Guardsmen. Have fun. It's like, we're on Tatooine. What's going on? Don't talk to me about Darth Vader and Imperial Assault. Brian had a bad experience I, once. I, I, I have angry oh, memories. Oh, My master's lightsaber is lost forever. It was very inappropriate. So the apps just like generate random missions? I haven't actually No, it, it actually them. has a brand new campaign, which is kind of nice. It's content mm. that doesn't exist in any of the physical expansions. Now, I will say that the app does not actually control monster action. So before they produced the these applications for Descent, they tried to, to produce a non-digital version of these co-ops with cards. And they, they basically translated the monster AI cards directly into the app on a one-for-one basis. And so the way that works is you... Each monster takes two actions, starting at the top of this list, going down the list until they've done two actions, which I feel like when they made the app, they could have just done something more with that. 
So it's it's definitely not perfect, and it's not as good as the monster interactions and in Mansions of Madness. But like I said, honorable mention in my opinion. Sure. One of the games like I think of when I think of app-related games right now, and one game I really want to get to the table more and get through the campaign mode of is First Martian by Portal Games. You take Robinson Crusoe, but you take all the card mechanics and all of the kind of random elements of that game and you move them into the app. Um, so the nice thing is, like, it, it has done some smart things. For example, in Robinson Crusoe, it'll say, like, hey, you need to deal with this thing in two turns. But in First Martian, it says, hey, you have to deal with this in up to three turns. You'll have up to three turns to deal with this thing. It might be one, it might be two, it might be three. And you don't know until the point where it just kind of disappears, right? So there's a couple of little clever things that they do. And the, you know, obviously it generates events and it can generate events that, like, target specific roles that are in play, um, and obviously, I like Robinson Crusoe a lot, and First Martian is has a very similar feel, except that you're on Mars, which, hey, I'm a space geek. I, I really enjoy that. It's like, oh, God, we need to survive on Mars and make food and make sure we have enough oxygen and sun and then also complete this specific mission so that we survive. And, you know, it's very much like things keep getting worse and worse as you're desperately trying to complete this mission. Yeah, and I think the weirdest part about that is that the app is almost just relegated to be kind of an event deck replacement. Yeah, it is definitely. Yeah, it's definitely not like a it's not like a strong replacement. It definitely feels like a light add-on, but it, it can do a couple clever things, but it's not like I've it's heard not it a does more in the campaign. I was gonna say I yeah. think yeah. the, yeah, the which real I really want to get to the shines table. is the campaign mode, which yep. we have not done. Yeah, and I really want to. I really want to get that to the table. We, we need to. Do we that. need to find some time to do that. If only we had a weekend of board gaming. If only we had a well. Could, yeah, but the, there's a lot of things on that. A lot list of things on the list. To just stop adding things. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Yes. So I think all we have left then is favorites. When I was growing up, I didn't have any of these games. Honestly, I didn't even know most of them existed. I was really grateful that Frank had a working copy of Dark Tower. <laughs> Because just like Mike said, I would have loved this game as a kid. I still love it. I think it's it's amazing. Even though the game completely screwed me with its randomness, <laughs> I still enjoy every bit of it. And I'm I love- pretty sure your character is still lost, even though we <laughs> haven't played the game in like a week. He never left the frontier. He's already starving. He's eating his soldiers at this point. <laughs> but it was it's just kind of the combination of the sound effects, the the physical components, and just seeing the tech working, like how how it. Uh, proceeded to you know have random events oh i found a pegasus in the woods or i got a magic sword that murdered a dragon like that's that's awesome like i didn't have games like that growing up sure i think my favorite i'm gonna go to the other end of the spectrum like when i think of favorites i think of hey what is the one game if i had to play for the rest of my life that would be it and for me it's got to be xcom xcom is just such a seamless integration of the app it it's a great game in of itself like that is the one electronic board game that as of this minute i'm ready to play at any minute i'm gonna go also to sort of the other end of the extreme from you which is a game that you cannot just be ready to play at the drop of a hat uh which is star saga it is huge and sprawling and fascinating and clunky and but it just generates such amazing stories it's a a huge investment of time and is not for the faint of heart but i i have played through it twice and and i'm about ready to play through it again it's just a marvelous commitment and experience. Drop that hat, Brian. I'm in. Okay, done. Yeah, I actually, I'd be so tempted to say Star Saga because that is my favorite game. But again, I have a good memory. It takes me longer. I've played Star Saga three times with 15 years in between each of those times, which tells you way too much. So I'm going to go Mansions of Madness because I can actually play it new. 
And I like the story, the way it generates things. Yeah, I think that's my choice. And Joe. <laughs> choices are difficult. Yeah, choices are difficult. Oh, you've got the tiebreaker. Ooh, the tiebreaker. There you go. I got pick. I pick one of the one of yours to crown king, right? Or or something else entirely. That's true. Oh, you um, are going with nightmare. No, 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 no. This thing is certainly complicated. I think certainly the the person who I was when I was in high school would have picked Atmosphere just because that game is so insanely amazing like i don't even understand it i I wouldn't pick that now but like having experienced again recently i'm like man i didn't realize how bonkers this was in context (laughs) because it's really bonkers i'm I'm extremely excited to get first martian to the table i really want to play their campaign mode uh i I really like the way the app interacts with it and i think it's extremely clever and i I think i agree with mike that like xcom is just a really solid game when we played it again recently i was like man I forgot how solid of a game this was. Just like from all angles, this is just like a really good board game, which, you know, sometimes games with electronic components, like they're really cool experiences. But like as far as the board game actual components, it's a little harder. Um, But like XCOM is just solid all around. So, well, that's it. Mike, definitive statements. XCOM is the best computer enhanced board game ever. And I'll die on that hill. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that uh, wraps everything up for episode three. Thank you for listening, assuming you have been listening. If not, I don't know how you're hearing this because that's weird. But stay tuned for our next episode. Fun with dice, I think, is where we're headed there. Oh, yes. Dice dice, are coming up next. Dice hate me, so this will be a blast. (laughs) As usual, we would love to hear your opinions on our opinions. You can check out our website, ascentofboardgames.com. There are links there to our email, our Facebook page, our Twitter, Discord, Instagram. We'd love to hear your comments. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to have you tell us how wrong we are. Give us a review on iTunes if you can, because that really helps our visibility. Unfortunately, all of the URLs for those are a little bit different because of the vagaries of the various social media sources. And since technology has not advanced to the point where you can just click on my voice, my suggestion is that you go to ascentofboardgames.com or look in the show notes and find our links there. Thanks for listening. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. This episode brought to you by Secret Secret Board Board Game Con. Con. (laughs) Shh.